I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. My guest this week is an entrepreneur and longtime journalist with a passion for storytelling. Elizabeth McBride is an award-winning business journalist whose work has been published in Forbes Magazine, Newsweek, The Washington Post, Quartz, Harvard Business Review, and many others. She often writes about investing, entrepreneurship, and international business. Ms. McBride also advises some of the world's top change agents on communication. Today, she shared about why she felt it was important to launch a new media company at this time in history and what brought her to this point following decades as a reporter and freelance journalist. I grew up very middle class, uh, which I feel like is sort of a shrinking group of us in the United States. But my dad was a career Air Force officer, and he was the first member of his family to go to college. Mm. And he put himself through school as a janitor. So tremendously proud of my dad. My mom uh, was a teacher. So I spent my childhood just moving everywhere around the world. Um, Spent a lot of time in Europe and in the deep South. And they say uh, that if you grow up traveling, traveling feels like home. So uh, I, have- I can relate to that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm an army brat myself. So oh, yeah, okay. my, my dad was army. My mom was a teacher. So, <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, they call us the oldest subculture. Yeah. Military brats, mm-hmm. which I find, I find when I meet a military brat, I connect with them a little bit more easily. I don't know what that's about, but um, so I grew up as a military brat, went to the university of Maryland because my dad had retired in um, Maryland as I was in high school. So I ended up at Maryland, walked up, I knew I wanted to write. I walked up the steps of the Diamondback and just spent my whole four years there, basically just being consumed by journalism, which I loved. Um, and I was, it, I was a you know, rising star in the journalism school and the Diamondback was a great platform. Did a couple of great internships at different newspapers. And then the year I graduated was uh, the recession of 1991, Mm. which shaped my career, right? Sure. Um, So I graduated into that recession and the only places that were hiring were business newspapers. Um, And I, having come from this middle-class family, right? I needed a job right away. Um, And so I just took a job in business journalism and it ended up suiting me tremendously and also being a very lucky move because as journalism collapsed overall, you know, after that, business journalism was the one area that was still, you could still make a living hmm. in it. Yeah. So when you went to college, how, how did you end up in journalism to begin with? Like, did you go to the university thinking, I want to be a, a journalist? Was that an aspiration or is that something that you kind of arrived at um, when you got to university? Uh, it was actually, I was sitting at my dining room table, filling out my college application for Maryland. And I had English written on the line because I love to write and tell stories. And my father walked behind me and he said, that is not practical enough. <laughs> <laughs> so literally I erased it and put journalism. That's and that's, that's how it happened. Right. I think for a while I was super focused on, uh, and still am in my interviews, I'll ask people about the turning points in their lives. So many turning points in people's lives are just these singular moments, right? Hmm. That just flip everything. And that was one for me. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, it's interesting too, because your, your father's experience growing up very middle-class to just kind of take what you were interested in and just helping you maybe even just see something where you could take your passion and apply it towards something that would actually help provide for you and your family. Um, in, in a different way, not to say that English and, and teaching or writing isn't, isn't that, but to give, to, to broaden your, your perspective a little bit. I think sometimes that's, that's the power of those, those moments and, and, and the people in our lives that kind of help us, help us in that, in that journey. So then how, when you got into business journalism, how did you, I get, I get the, the, the recession of 1991 journalism collapsing. Did you ever have interest in going outside of, of business journalism or was something, was there something in those early years that really captured your imagination to, to kind of stay with it over the last several decades? Well, you know, that's a good question. Um, it was, so I do love it actually. Um, and I think I, I sometimes have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about it because, Mm. um, it's sort of the stepchild of journalism, right? Like if you want to be a famous journalist and write for the New Yorker, you don't usually become quote, a business journalist. Um, And that's become more true over the years as journalism has gotten to be a kind of elite profession, right? Tons and tons of the journalists who are well-known today came from wealthy families or don't have that kind of like um, middle middle class background that I have, so so business journalism has been a little bit of a stepchild. But I think partly because of that military brat background, right? I'm comfortable being an outsider. So business journalism is a little bit of an outsider to the world of of journalism. And the other half of it is that it has felt like a great space to make an impact. Um, so that you know, if I could coming from a fairly progressive kind of mindset, um, if I could ask business people questions, tough questions about what were they thinking about in terms of impact, right? It's not just about profit. Like, how do you square it in your mind, Bob Iger, that there are workers at Disney World who can't afford insulin, Mm. right? That's a fair question to ask, but it doesn't get often asked from the mainstream journalism world because they don't have the kind of knowledge and chops to ask it. And it doesn't really get asked in the business journalism world because they're coming from a very for-profit point of view. The question is already settled to them. Yeah, that's interesting because when you went into it in the early 90s, um, this idea of impact, social enterprise, it was relatively new, hadn't yet even been coined, although companies had been doing it for for centuries and in how was that received um, as you were, you know, bringing some of that philosophy of journalism into the business journalism and asking some of these questions? How, how was that received um, by businesses as you're, you're starting to feel out what that looks like? And then also, how was that received by uh, the publications that you worked with? Uh, well, business people are generally fairly receptive to it, right? That's the interesting thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, most business people whether they're overtly, quote, impact or overtly progressive or anything else, like have a deep concern about how their actions um, affect their communities, especially in the world where I was growing up as a, in my profession, right? And so I, my first job out of school was like Harrisburg, Lancaster, York, Pennsylvania. I mean, there were like family owned businesses there 
just like salt of the earth, right? They cared a ton. So it wasn't that unusual there. Like sometimes I would ask it in a sharper way or really pin them to it and that made them uncomfortable, but it was okay. Um, as my career evolved, and I think as the world changed more, I would say that the publications that I'm writing for the business publications have gotten deeper into the for-profit mindset. Hmm. So is that, is that some of that due to kind of in that same time frame, the collapse of journalism, so to speak, um, yeah. and then the consolidation of, of businesses, you know, you've got, uh, what used to be community banks getting gobbled up by major corporations. And that's good because it's increasing efficiency or, uh, whatever, but you're, but you're losing that connection to, kind of that local community. So I guess, cause I've got to imagine in Lancaster, uh, they cared because those were their neighbors. They went right. to church with them. They saw them in the grocery stores. They, you know, they were in rotary with them. And so there was a, there was a genuine affection. They supported the little league soccer team or whatever. Um, but when the more you get removed from that sense of like personal attachment and community, and that's one of the, I think the dangers that we've seen over the last couple of decades, is that, is that something that you experienced? Like as, as you went from Lancaster to these like bigger, more for-profit, um, that everything became one noise, right? Cause there's just so much, and, you know, you've got to find that one sensational story that's going to get the, uh, get the eyeballs on it. Um, but then also it, it's somewhat depersonalized. Is, is that something that you experienced as well or? Oh yeah, I, I would. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you you hit the nail on the head, right? There is this distance that's growing in so many ways in our culture. Um, and you and I are lucky now to be inhabiting a space that's grown up in opposition to that, right? But if you're talking about the trends over the past few decades, over the course of my career, the values that I thought were sort of obvious about the business world changed, right? I mean... I wrote a piece about Facebook on my Forbes blog like two or three years ago that was just about, you know, in the business journalism world I grew up in, like jobs was part of what a company did. That's kind of why the community supported the businesses because the businesses were providing jobs. And technology, high, the high tech world, for one thing, came in and really changed that, right? So that Facebook for a long time, I think it was a point of pride for them that they were able to generate these enormous profits with very few employees. Mm. Total like change of the social compact, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I think that attitude kind of infected the world of, uh, of non-tech businesses as well. At the same time, we were seeing this growth of kind of the libertarian mindset that took over the Republican party at the same time. So there are all these forces saying, you don't need to care about anybody but yourself. Hmm. Um, big is beautiful when it comes to business and efficient is what we need to be pursuing. All these things have kind of gotten to be values in the business world and therefore were reflected in the business publications I was writing for, but totally, you know, I always felt terribly uncomfortable with that, right? Hmm. But I would often find myself um, horse trading with my editors so that uh, I could I could land an interview with Jack Bogle. Jack Bogle was my great ally in all this um, for years because he's such a big name. He's the founder of Vanguard. I'm sure you know, most of your listeners know. So he, he would um, jump on the phone with me and we would do a quick story. Jack Bogle says X, Y, Z. I could always sell that to someone. 
And then in exchange, uh, I would bargain with the editor and say, okay, so now I'm going to write about this woman entrepreneur in Egypt, right? Mm. So I would get the stories that I thought were important and good into big publications because I could do that kind of transaction. Yeah, and it's interesting because you, you you bring up two things there, the the, the almost the pay-to-play media, just the, the, the collapse of journalism and um, kind of citizen citizen purchasers to kind of this pay to play, which, I mean, you can understand from an efficiency or a growth perspective, but the danger of that, right. is the, like now the inability to kind of really speak truth to power, so to speak. Um, and so the unwillingness sometimes, so there's that aspect, but then this, like how you have to kind of almost horse trade in mm-hmm. order to get the story. So where did this passion for you come from to kind of, to tell these stories of female founders or, um, underrepresented communities that just didn't, didn't get the attention, um, from mainstream media. Where did that, where did that passion emerge for you? Well, I love stories. (laughs) I just fundamentally love stories. Right. And uh, it's when I started times of entrepreneurship, which is only a year ago now, and I was out talking to my friends, uh, other journalists and writers, one of them said to me, I just do not want to write any more stories about white guys making apps. Right. I mean, we're just bored. It's just boring. Yeah, it is. (laughs) It's way more fun, way more interesting to like to go to Kentucky and, you know, meet somebody like Kristen Smith, who's starting a restaurant as like a lesbian woman in a town. You know, there's just so many elements about that story or to go to Egypt and and interview the woman who has a family who makes a like this magnificent jewelry, right? She was the first woman to train in the market in Egypt among all the, the male goldsmiths. Um, so it's just really about, for me, about stories. And then as I got older and I started to think a little more seriously about my impact in the world, then it came to be about making a change. Mm. The fact that as you tell stories, you can uh, drive investment, you can drive partnerships, you can drive policy, just starting to see the power of stories. Yeah. Well, and I think you you know, you've got an MFA in creative writing. Um, so, I mean, so you know so much more about this subject than I do, but I know the best stories for me or are the ones, especially talking with my girls who are, you know, in elementary and middle school now who love to read are the ones where they, you can imagine yourself in the story. Mm-hmm. And I think what, what I'm hearing you talk about are the stories that really resonate with you, with me, with people is like to be able to see yourself in that story. And I think the, 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 I I would completely agree with your friends are like, and just another app story from a white tech founder. How can, how does that resonate at a fundamental level with people to where they can see themselves in that story? But, um, but this African-American entrepreneur in Chattanooga, Tennessee, um, that's, that's powerful more people can now see themselves in that story. Um, and that, 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 that has legs to it. Mm -hmm. Um, but but yes, relatable, right? That's the key. That's the word that we throw around in the relatable. Relatable. It has to be relatable to people. Um, yeah. And it's not always like who the, the person is, right? It's not, it's not that I relate only to other women. Maybe that's the easiest bridge for me. Um, but if you're, serious about doing the work of storytelling, you find things that are relatable in a story that cross boundaries, right? So a relatable moment could be like, I'll often ask in an interview, well, what's like, you know, what's the worst 
what's the most embarrassing moment of your life? <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. I don't think a lot of people answer that, honestly. But, uh, <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> maybe. So you could tell me, like, yeah, would you tell me right now on the spot? No, probably not. Um, but uh, it's relatable, right? If you can pull that kind of um, detail, that kind of tale from people, you can fold that into a bigger story and it becomes very relatable. Yeah. I think sometimes the stories, especially in business or written is, as um, as almost like this, this, this hero where it's like, it's unattainable mm-hmm. and it's like this, this magnificent being that's, that's accomplished or charged the hill or whatever. And, and I, I definitely think those fall flat. I think, I think the ones where someone succeeds, there's, there's potential victory, so to speak in the story, but you see the trial. You see kind of like, I almost died here. The business almost failed here, you know? <laughs> and I think, uh, because it's like, yeah, that, that's, that's what it means to be human, right? We, we have successes and we have unbelievable failures. So, um, so for you, you're an entrepreneur. I mean, you started this, this brand spanking new, uh, journalistic endeavor, uh, in the midst of uh, right at, right at the, the front edge of a pandemic, um, as journalism globally is collapsing, so what what's that experience been like for you? Um, oh my! Phrasing <laughs> okay, like that just made it seem like. Well, I mean, I I think what's fascinating is you you have really hit the ground in the midst of just crazy chaos in our, in our country uh, with some pretty amazing stories. Um, I mean, you're a fantastic writer, but I think the stories you've been able to capture, but it's gotta be hard. I mean, the, any business is tough, um, but to do uh, a new media for the new economy, so to speak, uh, wow. Uh, I can't even begin to imagine like thinking through business model, revenue, sales, stories. Um, I'm really f- curious as to when you sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what's that been like for you kind of starting off as, a, as an entrepreneur yourself? Um, writing you can do. I'm sure you can do that in your sleep. But now kind of translating that into your own business and trying to, to bring that to life. Well, there's so many answers to that. I mean, one thing is that when you're launching a company, I think in any field at the age, I'm almost 50, um, where I am is that you have like this incredible network of professional friends and close friends and supporters, you know, who's who, you know, who's going to be a good player. Mm. Like that's like the real capital that you're bringing to the table. And the great thing about being a journalist is that I have that network and web of friends in so many different areas, right? Because I've interviewed so many zillions of people over the years, kept in touch with some and many remember our interactions thankfully, um, as positive ones. <laughs> so, That's <right>? critical. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Not everyone. I have written some stories that, you know, I can't go back to those people. But um, yeah, so that's the, I, that's the fundamental thing, right? But as I launched, um, I was able to, at so many turns, make a quick phone call to say, hey, what do I do here? Who do I need to help me here? Like the, that network has really been everything. Um, and the second thing is because of the, the recession and the, the impact on journalism, there was tons of talent on the market. Mm. Um, and I knew a lot of them, right? Um, so now we have people writing for us on the site 
like Eric Adams, who just published one of his stories yesterday, who's, you know, been a high profile writer for years in Wired Magazine and Gear and some of those. Um, you know, Elaine Pofelt, my good friend, who's a former editor of Fortune Small Business. So um, we've been able to get really just great people. Anne Field, who's a great impact writer, you might know mm -hmm. Anne. Um, so that's been actually like a blessing, right? It's sort of like best of times, worst of times. Yeah. Charles, Charles Dickens. Well, it's kind of like it, entrepreneurship. You know, you, you listen to Guy Raz and his podcast, and he's always asked that question, like luck versus, and generally it's luck. Um, but I think in your case, there, there's an element of luck, but I think also like the fact that you have a history like of freelancing, working with journalists, the connections you have on stories, the social capital, if you will, that you can bring to the table. Um, but I mean, that's an interesting thing where like the opportunity that the pandemic presented itself with many journalists being furloughed. Um, and your ability to kind of help them think through probably a flip to freelance and to continue to, to bring money in for themselves, but also to produce content for uh, this new publication. Um, I'm, I've, I've got to believe that's kind of helped times of entrepreneurship take it to the next level, even in just the last 10 months. Yeah, I, well, I hope so. You know, I come at almost every act interaction almost to a fault um, thinking about how I can help the other person. Um, and I hope that we have been helpful to a lot of journalists. Um, part of what I love at this point is the idea of keeping my profession alive at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and, and even in business journalism, sort of charting a new path because it's so business journalism is just generally kind of lost at the moment. Um, so yeah, I hope all those things. I mean, we have tons of challenges, right? The other thing I will tell you, I remember <laughs> when the pandemic hit, we launched February 12th. So it was like when we thought, you know, we were hearing the headlines, but we didn't think it would be a big deal. Right. And then three weeks later, I was up in Boston at MIT. I'm a fellow or I'm a journalist in residence at the Legatum Center right now. And I was up there and I was uh, spending the night, my friend Dina Sharif, who is the executive director of the center said, you know, just come stay with me. You don't have to do a hotel. So staying in her, in her, apartment sleeping on her couch and I remember just being up in the middle of the night thinking oh my god right am I gonna be able to feed my kids uh because the whole world is collapsing economically like what do I do and I just remember in that moment thinking all right you've been here before you're a freelancer right I'm a I'm divorced so I've been at these moments in my life where I was like what do I do mm. and so I just I just did what I knew how to do which is you know went like worked right yeah got clients um like i said to myself for a month or two i'm gonna write every story because i'm gonna conserve our capital so i did that it was exhausting um but i just did i just did it right because it that's what i thought i needed to do and that's how we kind of got through that first really hard time when everything felt so uncertain and i was lucky we had a couple of big contracts that kept yeah running. well so you sit really in an interesting position. You're, you're a student of entrepreneurship. Um, you, you, you see the trends, you, you know what's going on in our, in our world, in our, in our economy. What, what do you see, what, do you, what are you excited about uh, at the times of entrepreneurship specifically? I mean, obviously you're, you're focused in areas that are not Silicon Valley, these stories that are typically not told in the mainstream media. But what are the trends in entrepreneurship that, that excite you? Um, that your publication is focused on and that you believe will help us uh, rebuild 
uh, the economy in a post-pandemic uh, pandemic world? I'm so glad you asked that question because I have been thinking about this tremendously over the past like three, three, four months. So I don't know if you saw the story I wrote in MIT Tech Review, which was published probably in May or so. Um, it was called um, Why Venture Capital Doesn't Build What We Really Need. Mm. Um, and it was really about the capital gap in deep tech. So venture capital does this great job of um, funding and driving software innovation, which is inexpensive and kind of easy. It's easy to pivot around a software model, right? Um, but that means that's left the door open um, or left a gap in funding companies like in biotechnology or like, uh, you know, uh, climate change, ag tech, food tech, right? All of these sort of things that are in the physical world that take longer to develop uh, that are deeply rooted in science. Uh, and at the same time, I see this tremendous opportunity in the world where Times of Entrepreneurship is working, which is a ton in the middle of the US and global markets that tend to be overlooked. There are so many great research universities in those spaces that just get zero attention, right? Mm -hmm. The entrepreneurs and the scientists and the discoveries coming out of there, I think just can languish really because all of the attention is focused on the coast and the top 10 schools. So that is one area that we are definitely digging deeper into right now, right? Um, we're going to do more coverage of that. Uh, we're also going to continue coverage. This doesn't excite me, but I think part of being in the impact space and being motivated by things beyond profit is that I feel a real responsibility to keep shining the light on just the decimation in the small business sector. Mm. So we're keeping the pressure up however we can. I just had an op-ed in CNBC, just keeping the pressure up on Congress to act. You know, yeah. I mean, this we as small business goes, this is 44% of our GDP. If that collapses in the next six months, we are in really big trouble, right? And it may well. I mean, we're all seeing those small businesses shutter around us, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this well, is it's a, it's a loss of also the uh, that 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 local connection because these small businesses reside in local communities, and so you, you lose that. What's left, right? These big these big box companies and such that can weather potentially or have access to the capital or the connections in Washington to to weather the storm. But these small businesses, um, we lose them. What what does that look like? What does that what does that mean for our small communities across the country? Uh, what does that mean for these families? What does that mean for, um, for, yeah. uh, for just the identity of place too? Not just, not just the businesses themselves, but the identity that they help create for these yeah. places. So, yeah, I think that, so that's one area. So yeah, we're on the same. Absolutely. That's one area we're going to stick to as well as, you know, what we're also covering, which is super cool, right? The emergence of more women entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. um, people of color, you know, global markets, well, I think it's interesting because right before we started the podcast, you and I were chatting about just the the uh, the changing profile of an entrepreneur, you know, that it's going to be predominantly as we move forward in the future, hopefully more female, more uh, entrepreneurs of color, but also older. Um, I mean, I think it's interesting. Something that I don't see tons of press on is just how the average age of entrepreneur of an entrepreneur is actually going up. 
you know, used to be when we were really focused on these, you know, these white guy tech founders in Silicon Valley, you know, someone right out of college or someone in college. Uh, but we're seeing that number go up. Uh, some of that's due to, you know, personal debt, student debt, and, and the need to get a job and the inability to kind of take that risk. What, what are you seeing that, that profile and, and, and how are you, you know, as you come into these experiences with people, their own stories, how has that lived out in these communities across the country? What does that profile look like to you? Uh, so that, that older entrepreneur, actually, so I interviewed a really fantastic entrepreneur whose name is totally escaping me right now because the interview is about a month ago, but I'm going to write the story for next week. Um, and he's running a company called Now Diagnostics in uh, Arkansas. And I'm really excited to write about it because they've developed a test um, for a, a fast response test for COVID antibodies, right? So I think it'll be one of those on the market. But he's an example of an older entrepreneur in that he was working at a corporation in-house, built up a, a big, I think it was a thousand person um, generic drug manufacturer or something like that. And, you know, a couple of years ago, just decided, hey, I'm going to try my own thing, right? And got with some people and just went and did it. And that is a real, I think it's about 50 employees now. Hmm. These are, you know, there are so many people who talk about, um, you know, finding the companies that can source the jobs because that's so important. The World Bank research and everything I've ever read is that you can't predict it, right? Yeah. Entrepreneurship is a, a mysterious force, um, but, if I'm betting and over my years of being a writer in this space, it's actually the older people who, if they have, if they want to do it, they're the serious ones, right? So if you bet on those older entrepreneurs, they will be building a focused company in a market niche that they know, and they will have the network to gather the talent around them. Yeah. So. That's my, that's one of the areas I think we'll see if we're smart about how to support and encourage those entrepreneurs, that would be a good thing. On the, on the capital side, um, in support of entrepreneurs, what, from your perspective, um, looking at communities across the country, what, what is, what's changing or what needs to change, um, in order to support financially, uh, cause all businesses need money to grow. Um, and there's been this predominance of a focus on venture capital, but only 1% of businesses ever take venture capital. Right. So what are you seeing or what do you, what do you think, uh, what are you hoping is going to continue to shift and change to support more entrepreneurs in more places as it relates to capital? You know, that's the way you framed that is interesting because I think actually capital. So the one thing we're seeing with the pandemic is that it is heightening the trends that already existed mm. and the trend that exists is that capital is well i actually don't know this so i was about to say the trend is that capital is is harder to get now i don't know that definitely community banks are in a shrinking position right mm. That's true. Um, so it's it's kind of i think it's unlikely that the pandemic i hate to say it but i think it's unlikely the pandemic can shift that trajectory um, the growing part of the market are the tech companies, um, which come in, but they have the issue we've already talked about, about depersonalization, right? How are they ever going to supplant a community bank? Yeah, it does, That does not look promising to me, although they could say in a million ways, um, 
well, we can do it, right? We'll do a new user interface or we'll have this great data. I just, I kind of don't buy it. And I'm not sure how many people do buy it at this point now that we've all spent six months on Zoom. It's just not as good. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not good. Um, uh, so I think, so I think those kind of dynamics are shifting around. I do see, so one hopeful area that's emerging is that serious people like you um, or uh, impact investors, um, venture capitalists who are looking for the next opportunity are exploring new forms of finance. So that I think is a hopeful space like revenue-based financing. Um, that's something I think could be really important. Um, some of the community loan funds, um, CDFIs might, you know, that's a space that's in community banking that might be hit hard. The, the Black Lives Matter movement might steer more funding to them. So there's, there's tons of shifts going on right now. I think the baseline change, though, is a narrative one. Mm -hmm. We need to remember that small businesses are vital we need to recognize that entrepreneurship is the path to economic growth. Um, I don't know. I think we just need to get back in touch with like the, our physical world again. I agree. Yeah. Well, so as a, as a storyteller kind of in, in, in closing, can you give me, so obviously a, a, an entrepreneur starts a business cause they, they see a problem and they have a solution to solve it. And so times of entrepreneurship is your solution to the problem. So give us, Give us a picture of how Times of Entrepreneurship and what you're working on is going to help help us realize this new economy uh, in a post-pandemic world. What does that look like to you? So the idea behind Times of Entrepreneurship was that um, the absence in the world of stories about founders in the middle of the U.S., people of color, women, um, and older people, that the absence of stories about them meant that nobody knew enough mm. of how to invest or help them. So the piece that I can solve, I'm not the financier, I'm not the policymaker, but the piece that I can solve is telling the stories that have deep wells of information inside the stories um, that are not just puff pieces, but are deeply researched and combine the power of the story. Um, that if we put those out in the world, the idea is that as people are connected, um, we will drive entrepreneurship and we will drive change. That's good. Yeah, I think uh, the desire for change, the pursuit of change, um, ultimately we want, we need to increase empathy, i.e. understanding. People need to see the other person. And the only way they're going to do that is through story, through connection. And so if, if, if I can ignore what's happening in Appalachia, cause I don't hear the stories, then I'm, and I'm not going to care. Um, and so how do we, how do we, how do we care uh, about the, ec the economic well-being, the, the social well-being of, of other communities It's well, we got to tell those stories. So. Yeah, I agree. I, I, <laughs> I say, well, we obviously agree. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I think uh, after all these years of doing it, I think that stories really create the emotional space for change. Mm. That's what I I'm think. write that do. one down. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's not easy at all because, um, because you also have to catch people at the right time. I don't have any control over them. Yep. If I can luck into the right time 
and I hit them with a story that creates the emotional space for change, then change happens. To learn more and stay connected, sign up for their daily newsletter at timesofe.com. And if you're interested in learning more about working with them on bespoke research on innovation and entrepreneurship, check out their website as well. Thanks again for listening to More Than Profit. And if you liked what you've heard, do us a favor by subscribing and leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bryce Butler with Access Ventures. Check out our work at accessventures.org. Thanks for listening.